So as I said before, we're starting a new series, uh, Walking with Jesus, and we thought that it would be good for us as a church after the summer with all the the different kinds of meetings and all the, the transitioning stuff that's been going on, we thought it would be good for us as a church just to have a series where we basically walk through a section of one of the Gospels and just spend some time with Jesus. It's good for us just to settle a little bit, get back into a normal rhythm, and what's better than watching Jesus in action? And so the the thought is that we're going to take from Luke 7 through to Luke 9, which is kind of a section in Luke's gospel. It comes right after some teaching, the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6. We're not going to look at that, but I'd encourage you to read it. It's kind of a summary of Jesus' teaching. And it just stretches through a whole sequence of Jesus' stories where he's in action, where he's teaching, uh, where you see him uh, involved in people's lives. And really, we get to see what kind of a savior he is. And so that's the plan to start at the start of seven and then to follow that through for the next few weeks uh, and be, until we get to a Christmas series. So once Christmas is uh, long in the shops, eventually we'll get to a Christmas series and uh, we'll stay in Luke uh, for the Christmas season this year just to spend some time there. Luke is one of the four documents that were written about the life of Jesus Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so basically everything before those four is written before Jesus came and everything after those four is about what happens after Jesus was here. But those four documents really are uh, really special for us because they give us the chance to see Jesus in action. And so as we jump in, in in chapter 7, what we're going to find is that we have two stories placed back to back that are about the same issue. And it's kind of, uh, I was pondering this, it's kind of like an issue that we tend to avoid, it's an issue that we'd rather not talk about, we pretend it's not there, and yet actually it is really the real issue. It's the subject of, well let's look at it, Luke 7, page, what is it, 863 I think in a church Bible, Luke chapter 7, let me just read the first couple of verses, and then we'll walk through this. Uh, together in the time that we have. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Luke takes us straight into the subject of death. And death is a subject that we tend to avoid. I think, certainly in my experience, the cultures that I've lived in or stayed in, our culture is the one that avoids death the most. I was just chatting with an expert in death. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? But I was just chatting with uh, Sarah, who works with people who are dying. That's probably a better way to put it, caring for them. And she said that the one thing that we do in this culture that kind of doesn't hide death is that we have uh, the, the hearse that's kind of open so you can see that there's a coffin in it. I thought, oh yeah, that's true. But apart from that, we like to hide it away, don't we? Keep it at arm's length. Keep it uh, sanitized. A subject we don't want to talk about. Let's not raise the subject. Let's not talk about the subject. Let's avoid reference to death. We, we hear all these different euphemisms, don't we? They've passed on or you know, they've gone to the other side. or uh, All sorts of phrases used to avoid talking about the fact that somebody is either dying or has died. We, we live in a culture where we never have an open coffin, which is quite common in other cultures. Uh, my parents, missionaries in Italy, and there uh, somebody dies, the body would be uh, there for viewing. And for the next 24 hours, the neighbors and friends would all troop through and look at the body. That's not something that we 
want anything to do with in our culture. Uh, in the hospitals, it's kind of behind curtains, keep it quiet, move the body away. And, and we do everything we can to either hide death or avoid death. All of the health and fitness and uh, all that obsession, in large measure, is to try to put off the inevitable, isn't it? And we live in a culture where death is something that we can avoid and we can try not to talk about it. Uh, and yet, that's kind of unusual, It's unusual in the world today, and it's certainly unusual in history. For most people, in most of the world, for all of history, death has been a very near and present reality. It's been a face-to-face reality. It's it's only really recently and where we are in quite a small part of the world where we have access to health care so that life expectancy can, can mean that old age is normal. If you think about it, for most people, that is not something that they could take for granted. In most places, in most of the world, uh, for most of history, childbirth would be a place where death occurred regularly, mother and child. Infant and mother mortality rates, so high, and yet today that has been almost eliminated for us. In the old days and in a lot of places, you would have a lot of children because you would expect that most of them would die. A child making it to adulthood would would be a rare luxury in some places. And yet for us, a child dying is a very rare thing. For most people, violence or war or or the kind of uh, hostilities that exist where there isn't good law and police means that death is very real and present uh, in the 20s and 30s. That if your child makes it to adulthood, chances are he will be killed in some sort of violent conflict. And so in those cultures where somebody makes it through to old age, they would be honored and revered and considered very wise, partly because they would be very rare. And so for most people in most of the world, death is a constant. Will our harvest be big enough to survive another year? Will we make enough money to be able to eat? Just think about how many people in the world die from lack of nutrition, but they just do not have access to food. Or people dying from diseases like malaria. If we go to Africa or places where malaria is an issue, uh, we can take the tablets and we, we can, I suppose, pay for a prescription if it's even worth that much. This medicine is so cheap. And we can stave off malaria and not a problem, but for thousands that is not possible and it's killing people day after day when the medicine is available but they cannot access it. And so whether we're talking violence or talking about disease or talking about whatever source, whatever age and stage, death is a very real and present reality for most of the world. A lot of people wake up in the morning And if they go to bed in the evening, they thank God that they made it through another day. I don't think I've ever prayed that, maybe once or twice, but it usually takes something major to rock us, doesn't it? To make us realize, oh, actually, I'm not completely safe. And yet, try as we will, try as we might, we try to keep it at arm's length, try to avoid the subject, try not to talk about it, try to hide from it. It has this amazing ability to come and break into our experience, doesn't it? It may be for ourselves personally. It could be something like a doctor saying, your results are not good. And suddenly there's this heaviness inside. It may be finding a lump or finding something, a symptom that kind of panics you. 
And suddenly you lie awake wondering if you're going to be killed by this thing. And even there, well, let's put it off. Let's not go to the doctor because we'd rather not know. But it does tend to break through, doesn't it? That moment of fear when you think, "Uh uh-oh, this is serious. I'm sure many of us have had those moments, those nights. And if it isn't our health or our circumstances, how much more is it those of those we love? Because as much as we'd love to avoid it and pretend it doesn't happen, it does. And death breaks into our world. And when it does, everything just kind of stops. Everything becomes heavy. Everything becomes different. It could be the death of a grandparent. Then the death of a parent, which is a unique uh, grief to go through. The, The sense of stability and security that only parents can give. Even when we've grown up, the world just makes sense when our parents are there. And then when a parent dies... And then the death of a spouse. It's hard to imagine anything uh, being in anywhere near the same category as having shared life with someone and then suddenly they're gone. What a void that must create. And maybe it's possible to say this, maybe the worst pain of all, the death of a child, where the order is reversed and things are wrong. And death breaks in, whether it's friends or neighbors or family or close family, death breaks in, and so ultimately we have to recognize death is a real, real issue. It's a reality that every one of us is going to face probably many times and ultimately one final time. And so how Christ connects with death really is critical. And Luke here in this section, it's almost as if he's saying, before we get to anything else about Jesus, let's go to the kind of the crux issue. Let's go to the core of it and let's recognize that Jesus, in his compassion, conquers death. No one else can do that. No one else can promise that. No one else can offer that, but Jesus conquers death. Let's look at the story. Luke 7, starting at uh, verse uh, 1, we read that already. He's come to Capernaum, and there's a centurion with a servant who's at the point of death, who was highly valued. That is to say that from this centurion's perspective, this servant was dear. He was precious. He was someone that he cared about deeply. Let's read on. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. So this centurion is a significant individual. It's easy to think centurion, Italian accent. Probably wasn't an Italian Okay, they, they would have, the Roman soldiers would conscript from lots of nations. So it could be Syrian, could be Samaritan, could be Egyptian, whatever. Possibly Italian, not Jewish. But this man, this centurion, was a significant individual. He had a lot of influence, a lot of uh, weight that he could throw behind anything that he cared about. And amazingly, he cared about the local community. He cared about the synagogue. Here are the elders of the Jews coming to Jesus on his behalf saying, Jesus, you've got to take notice of this guy. He's a good one. Yes, he's a Roman soldier, but he built us our synagogue. He's a man who loves our nation. He's a good person. And Jesus responds to their plea. 
and starts going uh, to this man's house. Now, interesting little fact, not a huge deal, but just to give a sense of the gravitas of a centurion. A centurion is a soldier who is responsible for a hundred other soldiers, okay? He's one over a hundred. His pay could be as much as 100 times that of a normal low-level soldier. That's significant income. Therefore, for him to be able to pay for a synagogue, it's within the realms of possibility because he had significant money, significant wealth. And here's a man who's using it well. And Jesus is going towards him. And I don't know about you, but, but I read that and my natural response is, yeah, go on, Jesus, care for him. He deserves it. He's worthy. Then you have to pause and think, now hang on a second. Where do we get that from? Why is it that we we tend to have a reaction that judges worthiness when it comes to death? For example, you you hear about a... um, a child grows up, uh, you know, is a wonderful teenager, just a real blessing at church, goes off to university, their future's ahead of them, two weeks later, involved in a head-on collision, and they're gone. And, and our natural response is to say, no, that's not right. Whereas the other one down the road who was on drugs and, you know, messing about and just living a rough life, when something happens to them, well, it's probably their fault, wasn't it? Why, why do we do that? Why is it that without even thinking about it, we naturally evaluate worthiness when it comes to death? That's not right. In fact, it's, it's something that the centurion himself is aware of because we read on here, uh, verse 4, he is worthy. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. Here was a man who had every right to be proud, and yet he's not. He says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's an interesting interchange, isn't it? The, the centurion is being honored by the Jews, but then he's, he's kind of diminishing that honor himself, which is the right thing to do. And then his follow-up statement triggers in Jesus a celebration of his faith, saying, this guy's got faith in a way that I don't see in all of Israel. What is it that he says that triggers that faith? He, he makes quite a strange comment. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, I too am a man under authority. Well, wouldn't you expect him to say, Jesus, you have authority? Like me, you can command and it can happen. And yet he says, like me, you're under authority, Jesus. How does that make sense? I think what's going on here is that he recognized in Jesus the same thing that he had in his own experience. 
It wasn't that as a ruler of a hundred or a a soldier over a hundred others, that that was kind of his strength. He knew that that strength came down the line. There were low-level soldiers, there were soldiers in charge of 10 soldiers, and then he was in charge of 10 sets of 10, and, and then there was what, it, what they call a kiliarch, a soldier in charge of 1,000, and generals, and they would report to Caesar. And so all the power and all the weight of the entire Roman Empire came down the, the line of authority, and he represented not the maximum of his own strength, he represented the strength of Caesar. And there was something in Jesus that made him go, you're like me. You're you're not stretching to do the best that you can do. You're not exerting the, the, the maximum of the strength that you can muster. You've got access to something way above anything I've ever seen. And in a strange sort of way, it's as if the centurion is saying, Jesus, from what I've heard about you, it is obvious that there's something going on between you and the one who's in charge of death itself and life. Whatever his view, however he'd come to understand God, he seemed to get that Jesus was connected to the Father. Now, could he fill out a form and explain in detail all the inner workings of the Trinity? No, not at all. Did he know the long words? Had he been to theological college and learned to use big terms? Not not in the slightest. But there was something in Jesus that triggered in him a sense of Jesus is connected to God. I'm trusting Jesus. That's going to be important. We're going to come back to that. And so he, his faith is celebrated. Jesus says, everybody, take notice of this man's faith. And then his servant who was at the point of death is healed. Now, we could stop there and we could make a big thing out of faith, but I think there's a danger. The danger is that we can make the focus faith. A lot of people do that, and that is not where the Bible takes us. Faith is important. It is by faith that we uh, are saved. It is by faith that, that we have access. Often, usually, when Jesus heals, there's a reference to faith. But here's the problem. When we get our eyes off of Jesus and we get our eyes on our own faith, we start to focus on how much faith can I muster. I wish I had faith like him. I wish I had faith like that one. My faith is too weak. My faith is too small. I wish I could be more sincere in my faith. And you see, the focus has shifted from Christ to what I can generate. We've got to beware of that. That is not what the Bible is is drawing us to. The Bible is saying, look at Jesus. Now, your response to him should be trust, but he's the issue. Christianity is not about uh, beliefs or religion or ritual. It's not about uh, life change even. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about morality and ethics and all these other things that we can diminish it to. Christianity is about Jesus. He's the issue. And really, ultimately, it's not do we know everything or do we trust enough. The issue is, have we heard about him and are we trusting him? He's the issue. And so to help us not make the mistake of celebrating the centurion's faith and turning it into a kind of a faith focus or a faith celebration, let's read the next story because this one kind of turns that on its head. Verse 11, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the, how do you say that word? Buyer, beer? I don't know, buyer. He came up and touched the thing that the dead man was on. And he said, young man, where are we? Uh, Touch the bear. The bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. That's the clue that he's not dead now. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It's just a little story, and it's only here. The other Gospels don't tell this one. But that, that's got to be a DVD worth watching, don't you think, in heaven? I'd love to know the story behind it. We don't know anything. We don't know uh, if this widow only had one son. That's kind of the implication. Right, that she doesn't have a whole flock of children back home. She, the assumption is he is her only son. We don't know whether he was ill and this had been coming for years or whether she woke up that morning thinking this was just another day and he went off to work and then the news came back that there'd been an accident. We don't know. You kind of wonder, don't you, that how quickly life can change. Maybe she did that morning wish him well and, and pray that he would be okay and then there was an accident and the wood and, and you know, the, the head and, and he was gone and it was too late. And, and it all in a, in a flash, there's this turmoil, isn't there, with death. There's always this turmoil of suddenly there's this body and it's got to be checked. And is he breathing? He's not breathing. Is there a pulse? No, he's going cold. Is he dead? He's definitely dead. And the weeping and the wailing. And she wouldn't even have time to think about her future. But what future would she have? She's a widow. This young man was her future. He would be the one to provide for her. So there's no future. Her situation is devastating. And and all of a sudden, it's just this whirl of of emotion and it's all happening. And and they take the body and they'd wrap it and they wouldn't leave it for days in that culture. It's too hot in that climate. So the body would be sort of stretched off and, and the community would gather around and big noise and weeping and wailing. And in the midst of it is this mother who's like, I, I don't know how to cope with this. I don't know what to do with this. And Jesus sees her, and he feels compassion. Just think about that. Jesus knows the death rate on the planet. Jesus knows that every second somebody's dying. He knows the, 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 the statistics, right? He knows that, what is it, every 35 seconds, something like that, somebody commits suicide. Jesus knows what's going on, and yet he doesn't just view it as a whole. He sees one mother mourning, and he feels it, feels the compassion for her. And he went up to her, and he said, do not weep, which isn't really the right thing to say unless you can follow through, right? But he followed through, raised her son, uh, resuscitated, I suppose is the technical term, uh, in the sense that he would later die again, but he raised him back and gave him back to the mother, powerful. The whole community went kind of crazy. They're like fearful and they're praising God and, and they're saying a great prophet and you know that God's visited us and this only God could do this and they're right. And so here we have Jesus expressing compassion 
for a Gentile whose servant was dying, and then for a widow whose son was dead. These are two very different people, aren't they? You've got a very powerful, very significant foreigner, and you've got a totally broke, totally weak, absolutely bereft widow. One Gentile, one Jew, one rich, one poor, and yet death was as real to one as it was to the other. Death equalizes. doesn't matter what you have. doesn't matter who you are. Death is death. And Jesus shows compassion. And in his compassion, he demonstrates that he is able and willing to conquer death. And he does so not for those who deserve it. That's the impression you'd get after the first few verses as the Jews are celebrating the centurion. But no, it's it's a conquering of death for those who don't deserve, those who are unworthy, those who don't necessarily stand out from the crowd, and yet Jesus cares. Let me just mention three things before we close, three things that I think are really critical as we look at these two stories. Number one, Jesus' compassionate conquering of death, it's, it's about his compassion. It's not about our faith. Now, we do need to have faith. The Bible invites us to trust. Uh, The offer of life is only uh, there for for those who will trust. It's not forced on anybody. God never kind of twists the arm and insists on things that people don't want. But it's not that the focus should get onto the faith. The faith and the the zeal and the strength of it, that's not the issue. I I came across a story, uh, and just picture this. Imagine two rock climbers. And they're climbing and and something goes wrong and they slip and they fall and they end up on this ledge. And night is closing in and they know if they don't get off that ledge, they are not going to make it till morning. They've got to do something. And so they look at the options that are there for them. There's option A on one side, which is kind of a a rock that's jutting out. And there's option B on the other side, another rock. And they kind of have to climb on either A or B rock in order to get back up to where they were. And so they discuss it together, and uh, and one of the climbers says, you know, I am absolutely convinced that option A rock is the one to do. I am definitely sure. I am totally sure. And his conviction is kind of compelling, and it's it's oozing out from him. Whereas the other climber says, I'm not sure. I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to think maybe option B. Now, one climber has great strength, great resolute faith. The other one has minimal faith. And as the darkness is closing in, they realize they've got to make their move and they make their move at the same time. And the climber with great resolute flamboyant faith steps on the one rock and the other one who's not really sure what he's doing says, I've got to go this way. He steps onto the other and option A, rock collapses. And the man with great faith falls to his death while the other one climbs out. You see, the issue with faith is not how much of it we have or how sincere we can be. The issue is which rock are we trusting? And if we're trusting a rock that cannot be trusted, it doesn't matter how convicted we are or how certain we are. If we stand on the wrong rock, it's going to collapse. You see, the issue is not the size or the volume of our faith. It's the focus of our faith. It's the object of it. Christ is the one we can trust. And there will be times for all of us where our faith is so tiny, 
It's so shaky. We're so hesitant and so unsure. And yet, if we trust in Christ, that is where our faith should be. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking, I've got to muster up some kind of super faith in myself, within myself, so that then God will honor my faith. That's not the way it works. What God invites us to do is to trust Him, to trust Christ. So that's number one. We've got to make sure that we keep the focus on Christ, not ourselves. It's not about how much faith we have. It's about which rock we're trusting. Number two, these two stories I think are important because they identify for us that it's it's not necessary to know everything. For, let me explain. In the first story, you've got the centurion who looks at Jesus and goes, I can't put words on this, but you're under authority. I recognize that. Could he explain the Trinity? Could he take a theological exam? No. His knowledge was maybe quite minimal, but he responded to Christ. The people in this town, were they, uh, did they have the whole picture when they reacted to this funeral interruption? A great prophet has arisen among us, true, but it goes beyond that. God has visited us, truer than you know, (laughs) but they didn't quite grasp it. I don't think they had a full sense of all that that meant. And that often happens for us too, where we don't know everything, and we've got to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of thinking, I need to really know all there is to know before God's going to bless me or God's going to work. You know, it's not about passing an exam. It's not about being an intellectual Christian. It's not about knowing everything. Again, it's about trusting Christ. And even if we can't put words on it, and even if we can't explain it, as Christ reveals himself to us through the text that we read or in in our lives through one another, as Christ reveals himself, the invitation is not study until you get this. The invitation is trust. Trust me. And of course, there's, there's always more to learn, and learning's not a bad thing. That's fine. And if you have great faith, that's not a bad thing either. But the focus is Christ. It's not us. These stories, I think, highlight that. Jesus compassionately conquers death for the undeserving. We don't deserve it based on our works. We don't deserve it based on our faith. We don't deserve it based on our knowledge. He does it for those who don't deserve People like us. And the third thing, I just want to finish with this. This is not a story or two stories that point us forward to a potential solution to our own funeral. It's true that if you trust Jesus, your funeral is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning of the rest of your life. That's completely true. But that's not the whole picture. The Bible is clear that actually what God wants to do, what Christ delights to do, is this that we've read about here when he was on earth at that wedding, sorry, that funeral in Nain. That's what he wants to do in our lives today. Because from birth, every one of us spiritually is already dead. We're dead towards God. And yet he wants to raise us and give us life. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, not even because we understand it, But simply as we trust, he wants to give us life. And so to get our focus on that, and just to finish up, let me read you a few verses where we're thinking about Jesus compassionately conquering death for us today. 
Okay, I'll read these verses. I won't tell you where they are. You just listen to them. Uh, you'll probably recognize them. And then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand over to Andy, and he's going to lead us in communion as we think about the death of Christ, which ultimately is the way God conquers death for us. Isn't that amazing? It's not pure compassion. It's compassion that drove him to the cross so that he could die in our place and we could have his life that we don't deserve. Let me just read to you a few verses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you so much that as we see these two stories, they flag up for us the issue of death. And Lord, we admit we tend to avoid it at all costs. And yet death is very real. Many of us have experienced the death of loved ones and it, it hurts oh so deeply that we can't even express it and yet gradually we kind of move on and then we start to hide the subject again. Lord, I thank you that we don't need to hide from death because you've conquered it. Thank you that you have gone to the cross and died in our place and now we can celebrate victory over death even in the face of death even knowing that probably each one of us will have to go through it. We just thank you that death is not the end of the story for those that trust in you. Thank you for your compassion, that compassion that conquers death for the undeserving like us. Lord, I pray that any here who aren't certain of being in relationship with you, I pray that as we go through this series by your spirit, you would pursue them and that gradually they would come to trust Jesus, maybe find themselves starting to talk to you and, uh, and have relationship with you. Lord, we pray that this series will have a deep impact for those that don't know you yet. And for those of us who do, Lord, we pray in effect the same thing. Give us a fresh appreciation for our Lord Jesus Christ. Stir our hearts in a new way over these weeks. 
And we thank you that this week, whatever comes, whatever happens, death cannot defeat us because death is already defeated and your compassion is toward us and we give you all the praise. Amen.